Welcome to a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide for July, August and September 2012. Dealing with Paul's Epistles to the Thessalonians, it's brought to you by Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Lesson 5 for July 28 to August 3, the Apostolic Example in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 to 12. Sabbath, July 28. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and what it means to us. Because in your word we see Jesus. We see him from Genesis to Revelation. But this week we're studying in the book of Thessalonians, the first Thessalonians, and we pray that as we find what Paul has written, that we may be able to apply it to our lives and be a blessing to those around us. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's Sabbath afternoon and our memory text is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Let's read that again, 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be trusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. And the key thought for this week is, by revealing what the true motive in ministry must be, Paul can help us all to examine our hearts and lives in the light of the gospel. This week's lesson marks a major transition from the arguments of the first letter to the Thessalonians. Paul moves from a focus on the church in 1 Thessalonians 1, 2-10 to a focus on the apostles and their experience in Thessalonica in chapters 2, verses 1-12. to In the previous chapter, Paul gives thanks to God because the believers in Thessalonica modelled their lives on Paul and, in turn, became models of faithfulness themselves. Now, in 1 Thessalonians 2, 1-12, Paul probes more deeply into the kind of life that enables the apostles to function as role models. While there are many possible motivations for teaching, preaching and service, Paul puts his finger on the one that matters most, ministry that will be pleasing to God. Paul was less concerned with growing the church in numbers than with its growing, through God's grace, in the right spiritual principles. In this lesson, we glimpse Paul's innermost life. Paul bears his soul in a way that challenges us to align our own spiritual hopes, dreams and motivations so that we will please God and have the right influence on others. Sunday, July 29. Boldness in Suffering. Question. Read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 in light of Acts 16. What connection does Paul draw between his earlier ministry in Philippi and his ministry in 
Thessalonica. Well, let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Well, we need to compare this with Acts chapter 16. And it has 40 verses. I think I'll read the lot so we have the context in which Paul is speaking. Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So, passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days, and on the Sabbath day we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us, who brought her master's much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid them stripes on them, and when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. 
But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prisons was shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. And then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. And when it was day, the magistrate sent the officers, saying, Let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. So let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 again. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Just one more page. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. For even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 picks up on the themes of the first chapter. The you-know-yourselves of this verse recalls the same language in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, and Paul's reference to coming or gaining entrance with the church recalls 1 Thessalonians 1.9. So, Paul is continuing the themes that he raised in the opening chapter of the letter. The end of the previous chapter was concerned with what everybody knew about the Thessalonians. In this chapter, he discusses what the readers know about the apostles and their commitment to the faith. Paul recalls how he and Silas were shamefully treated in Philippi on account of preaching the gospel. On the long road from Philippi to Thessalonica, every step was a painful reminder of that treatment. No doubt they bore outward signs of their pain, even upon arriving in Thessalonica. It would have been easy at that point for the apostles to take a less direct approach to evangelism in the new city. After all, that they had just been through, who would have blamed them? But the Thessalonians proved eager and open for the truth. Reality said, don't ever preach the gospel again. 
But in the midst of their pain and suffering, God was saying to Paul and Silas, Be bold, be strong. So they began to be bold. In spite of the likelihood that persecution would arise again. There was a strong and visible contrast between their human condition and all the frailties that come with it, and their empowerment by God. In the end, the Lord uses these outward circumstances to His glory. The visible wounds of the preachers provided evidence of two things to the Thessalonians. First, the gospel they preached truly came from their personal conviction. They were not doing it for personal advantage. Second, it was clear to the hearers that God was with Paul and Silas in a mighty way. The gospel that they preached was not just an intellectual construct, it was accompanied by the living presence of the Lord as revealed in the lives of the apostles. So to finish the day, what would you point to as evidence that God has changed your life? How is this evidence visible to others? Or is it visible at all? Monday, July 30, the character of the Apostles. And our verse today is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3. And we're asked to read it, and the question is, what key point is Paul making there about motives? 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 3. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. It was widely known in the ancient world that there were three keys of persuading people to change their ideas or practices. People judged the power of an argument on the character of the speaker, in Greek, ethos, the quality of logic of the argument itself, logos, and the power of the speaker's appeal to the listener's emotions or self-interest, pathos. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3-6, to 6, Paul focuses on the character of the apostles as a key element of the preaching that led to radical changes in the Thessalonians. In these verses, Paul draws a contrast between himself and the popular philosophers, whose preaching was often motivated by personal benefit. We saw that in Lesson 3. Paul used three words in verse 3 to describe possible bad motivations for preaching or ministry. The first word is error, an intellectual mistake. A preacher may be excited about an idea that is simply wrong. He or she may be perfectly sincere, but self-deceived. They think they are doing good for others, but are motivated by false ideas. The second word is uncleanness or impurity. People are attracted to individuals who are widely known for their power, ideas or performance. Some public figures can be motivated by the sexual opportunities that come with fame or notoriety. The third word is best translated as deception or trickery. In this case, the speaker is aware that the ideas being presented are wrong, but is consciously trying to mislead people in order to benefit himself. 
Paul and Silas were not motivated by any of these. If they had been, their experience in Philippi would probably have made them quit preaching. The boldness that they exhibited in Thessalonica was made possible only by the power of God working through them. The power that the gospel had in Thessalonica, as expressed in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, was in part due to the character of the apostles which shone through in their presentations. Let's read that. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Logical arguments and emotional appeals were not enough. Their characters were in accordance with their claims. Such authenticity has tremendous power in today's world, as it did in ancient times. So to finish today, think through your own motives for all that you do. How pure are they? How free are they of error, deceit and impurity? If they are not what they should be, how can you change for the better? Well, first of all, we need to look at several verses to finish today. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 16. And that reads, Therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. And Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13. And that reads over the next page, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And finally, Psalm 51, verses 1 to 10. And that reads, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Tuesday, July 31, Pleasing God, 1 Thessalonians 2, 4-6 Question. Read 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 4-6. Describe the contrast between Paul's motivation for ministry and the worldly alternatives he mentions. Why is it not always so easy to see the differences? That is, how can people deceive themselves regarding the purity of their own motives? Why is this so easy to do? 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 4 to 6. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, 
so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. The word often translated as approved in 1 Thessalonians 2.4 reflects the idea of testing or examination. The apostles allowed God to test the integrity of their lives and intentions. The purpose of that testing was to make sure that the gospel they shared would not be distorted by a contrast between what they preached and how they lived. The popular philosophers of the day wrote about the importance of self-examination. If you want to make a difference in the world, they taught, you need to constantly examine your motives and intentions. Paul takes this idea one step further. He taught that in addition to self-examination, he was examined by God. God verified that what Paul preached was consistent with his inner life. In the ultimate sense, God is the only one worth pleasing. Human beings need a sense of worth in order to function. We often seek this worth by accumulating possessions, by achievements, or through the positive opinions that others express about us. But all these sources of self-worth are fragile and so temporary. Genuine and lasting self-worth is found only through the gospel. When we fully grasp that Christ died for us, we begin to experience a sense of worth that nothing in this world can shake. Question. What does 1 Thessalonians 2, 5-6 add to the three motivations listed in verse 3? For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. The concept of flattery picks up on the theme of pleasing people, a poor basis for evangelism. Paul is not motivated by what other people think of him. He also rules out otherworldly motivation for ministry, money. People who have been blessed by someone's ministry are usually eager to give money to that ministry or to buy its products. This can tempt God's workers to lose their focus on the only motivation that really matters – pleasing God. So, to finish today, what in your life pleases God and why? What doesn't and why not? Wednesday, August 1, Caring Deeply, 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, Paul's primary motivation for ministry is to please God. What additional motivation does Paul bring up in the verses that follow? Let's look at verses 6 to 8. Neither did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. 
So, affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. In today's world, money, sex and power are often considered the primary motivations for human behaviour, at least for those consumed by self-interest. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 3-6, Paul uses a number of different words to rule out similar motivations in relation to his ministry. Greed, immorality, deception and flattery have no place in Christian life and ministry. The apostles were motivated primarily by the desire to please God in all that they did. In verse 6, Paul notes that the apostles could have been a burden to the Thessalonians or literally could have thrown their weight around. As apostles and teachers, they could have demanded recognition of their status. They could have expected to receive monetary favours and to be treated with special honour. But in Thessalonica, Paul declined anything that would have compromised his motives or that could have put a stumbling block in the way of the new converts. While Paul's primary motivation was to please God, in verses 7 and 8, he expresses an an additional motivation, his great affection for the Thessalonians themselves. Verse 8 uses the language of emotional warmth. Preaching the gospel was much more than a duty for Paul. He gave his heart, even his whole self, to the people. Question. How did the churches of Macedonia, of which Thessalonica was a part, respond to the tenderness of the apostles? See 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1-5. to What does this teach us about the importance of character in the lives of those who witness to others? 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1-5. to Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia that in a great trial of affliction the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us, by the will of God. In Monday's lesson, we mentioned the three ancient keys to persuasion. The character of the speaker, ethos, the logic of the argument, logos, and the appeal to emotion or self-interest, pathos. In verses 4 to 6, Paul emphasized the character of the apostles as being reason to follow them. In verses 7 and 8, we see an appeal to pathos, the emotional bond that developed between the apostles and the Thessalonians. The gospel is that it's most powerful when it touches the heart. So to finish today, think about the character of someone who influenced you in a positive way spiritually. What was it in particular that touched you? How can you learn to emulate the same traits?
Thursday, August 2, to not be a burden, 1 Thessalonians 2, 9-12. Question. While Paul was in Thessalonica, what other things did he do in addition to preaching the gospel, and why? First, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. For you remember, brethren, our labour and toil. For labouring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. The idea that Paul was working night and day would be a huge exaggeration if taken literally. The Greek, however, expresses a qualitative idea rather than the actual amount of time spent. In other words, Paul was saying that he worked beyond the call of duty in order not to burden them. Paul did not want anything to stand in the way of his witness to them. In addition, he was very careful to behave in such a way as not to cause offence, either before God or before others. Paul and the apostles sought to be blameless in their relationships so that the gospel would become the central focus of attention. Question. What analogy did Paul use in 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12 to describe his treatment of the Thessalonians? See also Luke chapter 11, verses 11 to 13. What does this analogy teach? Well, first of all, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 11 and 12. As you know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who called you into his own kingdom and glory. And then in Luke chapter 11, verses 11 to 13. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The good Father provides boundaries and encouragement as well as love. He adapts his nurture and discipline to the unique character and emotional conditions of each child. Depending on the child and the situation, the Father may offer encouragement, a stern lecture, or disciplinary punishment. There is a certain tension in Paul's missionary approach. On the one hand, he always sought to adapt his approach to the unique character and situation of the people. On the other, he was very concerned about authenticity, that the outward and inward be one and the same. How can one be authentic and genuine and yet be all things to all people? The key is the love Paul had for his converts. He did all he could to model authenticity for them. Yet he realized that there were things that they were not able to handle. So he worked with his hands and adapted his instruction all in order to avoid putting unnecessary barriers in the way of people's acceptance of the gospel. A powerful lesson in self-sacrifice for sure.
Friday, August 3. In the book The Acts of the Apostles, Ellen White writes on page 319 and 318, No matter how high the profession, he whose heart is not filled with the love for God and his fellow men is not a true disciple of Christ. He might display great liberality, but should he, from some other motive than genuine love, bestow all his goods to feed the poor, the act would not commend him to the favour of God. And, from the book Gospel Workers, pages 234 to 236, while Paul was careful to set before his converts the plain teaching of Scripture regarding the proper support of the work of God, at various times during his ministry in the great centres of civilization, he wrought at a handicraft for his own maintenance. It is at Thessalonica that we first read of Paul's working with his hands in self-supporting labour while preaching the gospel. But Paul did not regard as lost the time thus spent. He gave his fellow workers instruction in spiritual things, and he also set an example of industry and thoroughness. He was a quick, skilful worker, diligent in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. 1. Think about a painful time that you have endured, physically, spiritually, emotionally, or some mixture of them all. In practical terms, how does someone find joy or courage in the midst of such suffering? Why is finding that joy and courage so much easier said than done? 2. Think about someone whose life clearly did not reflect his or her claims to be a Christian. How did that person impact your own walk with the Lord? 3. What are the pitfalls in becoming emotionally attached to people with whom you are sharing the gospel? How does one set appropriate boundaries for the relationships that develop whenever you work closely with other people? And to summarise this week's lesson. In this passage, Paul opened his heart to reveal the trust motives for ministry. The ultimate motive is to please God, whether or not those to whom we minister are pleased. Motivations of money, sex and power have no place in the heart determined to please God. The next most important motive for ministry is heartfelt love for the lost. Both of these motives are clearly expressed in 1 Thessalonians 2 verses 1 to 12. And that brings us to Inside Story, our mission story for this week. And it's titled, The Lost Boy. Do and Zoe are a global mission pioneer couple who are planting a church in a city in China. They sell products from door to door in order to meet people and make friends for Christ. They focus on helping people with special needs, such as the sick, the elderly and the needy. Then they introduce their new friends to their saviour. Most of the people living in the region worship idols, so Du and Zhou visit the temples to meet people as well. They search for people who look lonely or sad and offer their sympathy and friendship. If the people are willing, the couple prays for their special needs. Thus they have made many friends with whom they share God's love and some literature introducing them to God. One day, as Du and Zhou were walking along a road, they saw a teenaged boy. He looked dirty and lost and troubled, so they stopped to talk to him. Du and Zoe realised that the boy had mental problems and couldn't tell them where he lived. 
It was winter and bitterly cold. The boy's hands appeared to have been damaged by frostbite. Du and Zoe asked the boy to come to their home. They gave him a bath, provided him with clean clothes, and fed him a simple warm meal. Again they asked him where he lived, but the boy couldn't tell them. Du and Zoe cared for the boy in the home while they contacted the police and a local television station for help in finding his family. Two weeks later, the police called to tell them that they had located the boy's family some 200 miles away from where Du and Zoe had found them. The couple took the boy back to his parents, who were grateful to have their son, their lost son, home again. When the family realised that Du and Zoe were Christians, they invited the couple to stay with them and tell them about God. Du contacted the local elder of a nearby Seventh-day Adventist church and asked him to visit the family. Du and Zoe returned home to continue their work. A few months later, they learned that the lost boy's family had found Christ as their Lord and had joined the Seventh-day Adventist church. Our mission offerings support the work of Global Mission around the world. This has been Dr. Percy Harold with a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide recorded in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired in Queensland, Australia and brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and Adventist Media Network. Remember, God is still faithful. Faithful.